0: Welcome to CMIO podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of January 27th. I'm going to start off with the letter i got a bunch of things on epic no offense to epic so some of the things are doing as good and some not so good but the ceo judy faulkner sent out this email to the ceos of all the hospital systems that are on epic and it made some news made quite a bit of news so i'm picking this particular one up from cnbc Wednesday January 22nd title Epic CEO is urging hospital customers to oppose rules that would make it easier to share medical info and I'll read you a few lines and then we'll talk about it Epic Systems one of the largest medical record companies emailed the chief executives of some of the largest hospitals in the US on Wednesday urging them to oppose proposed regulation designed to make it easier to share medical information The critics of the rule, which would include Epic here, say that the uh, rules don't have enough provisions to protect patients privacy. Epic's uh, Faulkner has been vocal in her criticism of the rule, which she believes will result in app makers having access to patient data without consent. On the other side, patient advocates have spoken out in favor of the rules, which aim to make medical records accessible through application programming interfaces. The rules are also designed to make it easier for hospitals to share patient records with other medical offices or hospitals. That's been a big challenge for years and studies have shown that it has a negative impact on a patient's health. Former White House Chief Technology Officer Anisha Chopra expressed frustration over Epic Smooth. It is unfortunate to see this much effort placed at stalling the important bipartisan progress we have made to open up health information at a minimum to consumers and institutions they trust going back to the rule here here's some, just some lines from the, the letter from judy we are concerned that health care costs will rise that care will suffer and that patients and their family members will lose control of their confidential health information and they she gives four bullet points here and we'll talk about each of these four. So number one is your patients have been able to download their health information since 2010, referring to Epic's MyChart. And so yes, MyChart does let patients see their data, but that's not the same as being able to pull data from all of the different healthcare systems that you may happen to visit and bringing it all into one unified view. Because as a patient, I still have to go to multiple portals. Let's say across the hospital across the street has one portal and my hospital has another one There's no unified view of all that data And this gives me the ability predominantly for read-only information But if I want to write information and if I want to schedule an appointment via the patient portal Well, I've got to go to the Cerner app to do that versus or the epic app to do it for for that system There's not a nice simple patient experience Uh, number two your patients have been able to share their information with anyone in the world that has Internet since 2017. This referral refers to a piece of functionality in Epic where a patient can go to a website, put in some information, and then it would give the doctor view only access to parts of the chart. And again, this is view only access. This is not the same as having the patient provide me with a USB that has their data on it, and I can now pull that into my EMR into discrete data fields. Looking at a patient's data and then forcing me to dictate or cut and paste it from one system into another is not the same as real access to data. Next is Care Everywhere allows you to interoperate with other health systems and was developed years before meaningful use required interoperability. but. I still can't see what's happening across the street to my patient that went to the hospital down the road that happens to be on all scripts. In our system we are the tertiary care center for STEMI patients from an outlying hospital and let's say we want to measure door to balloon time but not the door time in our facility we want to know from when the patient gets to the outlying facility when did the patient arrive there to balloon time in our facility. We don't have any interoperability there, so that's a labor-intensive process. I'm sure something that all of you experience and have frustration with is when your patient goes to a facility and has their labs done with something that's not interfaced with your EMR, well, what you get is a fax document that now ends up in as a scanned-in PDF, and you're looking for the last hemoglobin A1C, but good luck finding it because it's buried in some PDF. So that's not really interoperability so care everywhere doesn't really do everything and number four epic interoperates with thousands of third-party products and apps yes epic has an app store and my understanding is is that they get a sizable piece of a vendor's revenue if the customer is using their tool through the app store and i believe that that's kind of the underlying issue that's stirring up this fight silicon valley backed third-party vendors do not want to be held at gunpoint to pay Epic and Cerner's fees. So if this rule goes forward, the amount of money that they can get from this process would be much less. So that raises the question, what's Epic and what are Cerner going to do? Are they going to raise fees on the hospital customers to offset the losses because they're not being able to get it for charging the third-party vendors? What would stop them from raising fees? Could you switch vendors? Is there? Uh, a cost to switching there's a huge cost to switching so I wonder if what she's uh, getting at with this statement saying that costs will be higher does that mean that she's anticipating raising licensing fees perhaps anyway I do think it's important the EMR vendors are really going to fight the interoperability pieces of the legislation that's out there Judy has been fighting it for some time at uh, the Epic UGM conference. She was very vocal and against this so that she's not changed her position at all. From her point of view, I get it. She is a trying to protect your business and is using that concept of patient protection and privacy as her means of doing so. Interesting. Next article. Next one comes out of Healthcare IT News. Athena's Take, as to Athena Health's Take on HIMS 20 Trends Primary Care Disruption, AI, and Competitive Data Access by Bill Sawicki, January 24, 2020. And I'll just pick out a couple of lines out of this because I thought it was interesting coming from this EHR vendor. They're, they're focusing on some different things here. So, Disruption at the Door of PCPs. This year, The front door of healthcare is where the greatest degree of disruption will occur, says Jessica Sweeney-Platt, who is the Executive Director of Research at Athena Health. Here's a quote. This marks the convergence of several important trends. First, the locus of care continues to shift away from inpatient care, which places pressure on ambulatory care providers of all specialties, but especially primary care, she explained. In fact, according to IHS market projections by 2025, the demand for PCPs is expected to increase by 12% while the supply will increase by only 3.5%. Further, we will see disruption to traditional access points in the form of retail clinics, urgent care centers, employer-sponsored care, telehealth and more, Platt continued. Patients have indicated that convenience and access are critical to their decisions about where and when to receive care and they are increasingly willing to trade off continuity of care for convenience. This is particularly true of younger patients with a reported 45% of millennials not having a PCP relying instead on retail and urgent care. While increasing patients options for where to receive basic primary care is great, it also means greater fragmentation of information and data. A full 62% of hospitals are not using patient data outside their EHR because external data is not available in their systems Uh, let's just talk about this one for a little bit because i think this is a huge problem in primary care where the clinics are really jammed up managing chronic disease and an acute patient calls up and says hey i'd like to be seen and they're told to go to urgent care go to the emergency department or to use a telehealth program that data never makes it back into the primary care system very difficult to manage a population when you don't get discrete data back into your EMR to help you understand the total picture of what's going on with that patient. So I don't believe that we have a true frictionless interaction that's going on. Sometimes you'll see the urgent care providers are starting to integrate and pass usually a CCDA back to the largest health system in the region, perhaps. I think that's good i think it's a step in the right direction but it's certainly not the same as getting discrete data into the fields of your emr uh, where you're going to want it i also like this article because it gives you that projection of the demand of pcps expecting to increase by 12 percent while the supply is only going to increase by three and a half percent we all know primary care is under a crunch i'm sure most of you have problems with access and getting patients in to see primary care providers which really is the front door of your system. So if you are still in a fee-for-service world and a heads-in-beds model, then getting patients into primary care is an important point of keeping your specialists uh, filled with new patients. So it's definitely something to be working on as CMIOs, looking at that access and how you can help reduce the friction there. Next article, also out of Healthcare IT News by Nathan Eddy, January 24th. FDA issues a cybersecurity alert on GE healthcare medical devices. The communication says vulnerabilities in clinical information, central stations, and telemetry servers might allow an attack to happen undetected and without user interaction. This one just kind of scared me a little bit. I don't like this one. Anyway, the specific security risk concerns a vulnerability that could allow a hacker to change settings and configurations inside the device, including the ability to silence alarms or otherwise interfere with the patient monitoring capabilities. These vulnerabilities might allow an attack to happen undetected and without user interaction, the FDA noted in its communication. Because an attack may be interpreted by the affected device as normal network communications, it may remain invisible to existing security measures the healthcare will be issuing a software patch to address the vulnerabilities and will notify affected customers to deploy them when the patches are ready the FDA is said to use firewalls segregated networks virtual private networks network monitors or other technologies that minimize the risk of remote or local network attacks i am not a cybersecurity expert but I think it's interesting to understand where cyber attacks might happen, where our vulnerabilities are. So I brought the article to your attention. Also mostly just to scare you like it's scaring me. Uh, Also in the world of scary, how about that coronavirus that's running around town? So there's an article here that Epic has pushed out software to help healthcare systems notify when a patient appears to be at higher risk for the coronavirus. I'm sure the other EHR vendors are doing the same, but I'll read you a few lines from this article. EPRIC has standardized a new travel screening questionnaire in an effort to ensure clinicians and other frontline medical staff ask patients about recent international travel. If patients say they've traveled from China or show symptoms consistent with the Wuhan novel coronavirus, providers are at now advised to start isolation precautions to help contain potential infection early this week the epic travel and communicable disease advisory board which comprises of infectious disease clinicians practicing in healthcare organizations using epic started discussing updates to the travel screening in epic to detect possible cases of 2019 ncov members of the advisory board include experts at providence st joe's in washington which upon t- reading the first 2019 NCOV case in the United States quickly turned on electronic prompts for doctors and nurses to ask travel screening questions. So I think Epic's being quicker to respond to this because of this next statement that was in the article here. In 2014, Epic found itself in the middle of a debate related to another public health crisis, the outbreak of the Ebola virus, and to what extent EHR workflows might be related to timely detection and effective response protocols. That September, Thomas Eric Duncan was admitted to the emergency department at Texas Pres- Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas, complaining of symptoms consistent with Ebola. Although he had told his nurse that he had recently traveled to Africa, and it was noted in the EHR, that detail wasn't discerned by the physician who discharged him from the ED. Duncan returned to the hospital four days later with worsening symptoms, and only then was he diagnosed as the first Ebola patient in the U.S. So, as you should be all over this we've already started talking at our institution we're an epic shop so we're going to take this uh, piece of functionality and put it in place and i'm sure your own ehr has something to put in place as well seems like this virus is going to run around for a little bit so it's worth worth being up to date on that next i'm starting to talk about some hymns things i'm going which will be exciting if any of you are there and want to catch up let me know and especially if you want to be interviewed to come on CMIO podcast, definitely let me know that too. So here's uh, an article saying that Epic is going to debut its ambient voice technology assistant at HIMSS 20. And this is by Bill Sawicki, January 22nd. This is the Hey Epic functionality in which it's the voice assistant where you can already do this today, where you can say, Hey, Epic's been used in 20 different organizations. I just haven't found the functionality to be all that great to, bother with it installing it into our system so you can say hey epic show me my schedule well that's not what i'm having trouble doing i don't need help finding my schedule i can find that just fine where they're getting to is hey epic show me the last cholesterol results. that's more interesting again not the biggest problem I'm having but as we get there it sounds like we're trying to get towards using the Ambient AI to help us navigate through the electronic health record to reduce clicking and scrolling that I like. So I'm going to the show. I'll check this thing out and I'll give you some feedback when I see more. All right. This article I really liked comes out of Health IT Analytics. It's written by Jessica Kent, January 23rd, 2020. New method determines accuracy of predictive risk models. The technique can help providers assess whether a predictive risk model result can be trusted for a given patient. A team from, from uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology has developed a method that determines the accuracy of predictive risk models, helping clinicians to choose better treatments for their patients. Together with researchers at MIT, IBM, AI Lab, and the University of of Massachusetts Medical School, MIT researchers built a method that can determine whether a particular model's results can be trusted for a given patient. Low-risk patients who are misclassified could fail to receive aggressive treatment, while low-risk patients who are determined to be at high risk could receive unnecessary and potentially harmful therapies. That's why this is so important to get right. Researchers focus on the global registry of acute coronary events, which is known as the GRACE risk score, a widely used risk score that can be applied to nearly any type of risk model. GRACE is a large data set that was used to develop a risk model that evaluates a patient's risk of death within six months of experiencing an acute coronary syndrome. The resulting risk assessment is based on age, blood pressure, heart rate, and other clinical features. The research technique generates an unreliability score ranging between 0 and 1 for any given risk prediction model the higher the score the more unreliable the prediction the unreliability score is based on a comparison of the risk prediction generated by a particular model like the grace risk score with the prediction generated by a different model that was trained on the same data set if the models produce different results it is likely that the risk model prediction for the patient is unreliable Here's a quote from one of the authors of the paper. What we show in this paper is if you look at patients who have the highest unreliability scores in the top 1%, a risk prediction for that patient yields the same information as flipping a coin and cannot discriminate between those who will benefit and those who will not. It's completely useless for those patients. Really love that because we're starting to see more and more use of these AI tools and I think you're seeing two things either number one is we completely ignore them or Number two is we take them at blind faith. Uh, yeah, the, the tool says the person's at high list for readmission So off we go and we administer our readmission prevention bundle But the patient may look absolutely nothing like what was in your training data set and really the prediction may not be that valuable. So I like the fact that we have the potential for a tool that will let us know that ahead of time. So that's uh, real exciting stuff. Keep an eye on that one. All right, gonna cover just a few more here. These come out of Becker's and some of these are financial related, but I, I, I like them because at CMIOs, we should at least have the knowledge of what's going on with the finances of our institution so that we can add value because not every cfo or ceo or c-suite executive believes in the fundamentals of informatics is going to have a return on investment so we always got to be cognizant of that and regularly show our value to the system so here's 45 financial benchmarks for hospital executives no i'm not reading you all 45 of them but there's a couple of key ratios that uh, this came out of Moody's not-for-profit and public health care U.S. medians reports, which came out a couple months ago. These are based on fiscal 2018 financial statements for 284 freestanding hospitals. So, for instance, the, the maintained bed occupancy, 66.6%. You should know that. You should know what your own organization's looks like. And are you higher or lower? I don't know what's... Determined in that bed occupancy is that midnight rule for Medicare I suspect it is Which is what the finance people tend to use or is it based on some other census point in time But a 66.6% rate probably a midnight rule is worth knowing If you're in a fee-for-service world where you need to keep those beds occupied That's an important number to know Operating margin on average here was a 1.8% You should know what your own operating margin is and that's a pretty low number on average because it's very hard to deal with the cost of inflation and being able to reinvest capital for the long run when your operating margins are only 1.8%. Health systems are surviving on this because they have activities that are typically being done outside of daily operations. There are many organizations that have so much cash in the bank or more likely invested in the stock market that. They will make more profit depending upon how the stock market does and depending upon their operations some years. And so they're more like a financial institution at that point and just happen to have some uh, healthcare, that thing that they do on the side. Interesting. I'm just going to jump down to for companies that have an, a minus bond rating, the operating margin there was 1%. For those who have a, Double A plus rating, the operating margin is 5.5%. Again, these are not for profit. So understand that there's a big variability in the operating margin. And if it's certainly reasonable to send an email to the CFO and say, hey, what's our operating margin? So that you can be informed and then see where you can add value. Because if you're sitting there down under the 2% range, your next project that you should be picking to work on should be something that's going to help operating margin. Probably should be anyway. They talk about cash on hand is 200.9 days. Another good question to ask your CFO. It's a nice gauge of your financial viability. If your cash on hand is less than 10 days, you might want to get your resume together. No, I'm just teasing. But it is reassuring. If you see that you have hundreds and hundreds of days of cash on hand, that your institution is well prepared to weather any bad storm. And there's a bunch of other Ratios that they go over here such as the current ratio and debt to cash flow I'm not going to go into all those You don't need your MBA necessarily to understand these, but it's good to have an understanding of the benchmarks And where your hospitals at because it helps you know where you can add value Next article also in Becker's is from is from Kelly Cooch Friday January 24th five healthcare leaders reveal simple changes that save money. I'm just gonna read Mm, a few of these thomas biga 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 president of Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health Hospital Division Says in the recent past we moved our management team from a paid at time off model where hours were accrued and carried up over a year's worth of PTO and they switch over to an honor system for time off the issue with the old PTO model was that when people left They took the bank of PTO with them and that proved to be very costly. In addition, as raises were given, the entire value of the PTO bank would be increased by the percentage of the salary increase. The management team now operates just under an honor system where there are no hours of time accumulated. Rather, days off are just recorded for monitoring purposes, but no definitive grant of hours or days off is set. The expectation is one will get the job done and done well, while at the same time taking time off at their discretion. I like that. I don't know if anyone out there is currently on that model. It makes a ton of sense to me. You really have to micromanage your executives about the amount of time off they're taking. It sounds like it saves money if you don't. And if somebody needs to take time off, let them take time off. As long as they're getting the job done and you're happy with the work they're doing, great. Next one Michael Marquardt, CFO of UVA this one was a reconciliation of contracts and technology platforms across health system entities this includes consolidating duplicative redundant or similar contracts as well as eliminating one-off vendor services that could be provided by the enterprise emr or enterprise resource planning system cmios have a role in this and identifying these little one-off systems when you've done an acquisition and some of your providers out there are using this the software maybe it's cloud-based but it the System already has another tool in its bank of, of software that they're using. And if you can get rid of those one-offs, someone out there is reviewing those contracts. Someone is out there maintaining the service or the interface. If you can help streamline those things, it definitely adds value. Got one more here. This is from Dave Williams, uh, MD, President and CEO of Unity Point Clinic and unity point at home in 2019 our laboratory clinical service group prioritized thinking like a system which included standardizing the vendors we were using looking at how we could keep tests in the system and identifying a primary reference lab on paper it might seem fairly straightforward but coordinating between facilities across a three-state area took some elbow grease it was a team effort and we got it done accomplishing an estimated net annual savings of more than 7.3 million It's these kinds of transformations, which are designed around our patients, team members and communities that help us move healthcare in a sustainable, aligned direction. Absolutely, as CMIOs, you can help find these things. Are all the lab tests that you're doing, do you need to be doing them in-house? Can some of them be moved to ambulatory? You could be looking at the number of send outs you're doing and where they're going. Definitely, there's lab utilization projects that you can get involved with or kick off and help drive efficiency in your hospitals last article i'm going to cover here also out of becker's it's also by kelly and it's friday january 24th the title here is 10 healthcare leaders share tips for effective communication i'm not going to cover all 10 there's just a few that i wanted to cover the first one's from robert gander ceo of banner ironwood medical center which is in arizona he goes on to talk about the Tool that has helped his communication skill the most is. Improving through storytelling. Most of the individuals who we consider to be highly influential leaders in our lives have mastered the art of storytelling. Completely agree with that. If you're trying to get providers to use order sets, standing in front of them and showing them numbers and saying, here's the data, use more order sets, doesn't have quite the same impact as if you show here is Mrs. Smith and here's her case of sepsis when she came in and she did not get the order set and this is what happened to her and then here's the case of mr jones and he did get it and look at what happened to him Antidotal stories but very moving meaningful makes it real for your providers who will hopefully remember these stories and use your order sets or whatever it is you're trying to get them to do so i like that the next one comes from Aaron Gillingham, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Beaumont Health in Michigan. Professional athletes don't just perform on game day. They spend hours practicing and learning from their mistakes. Improving communication with colleagues and direct reports is a skill like sports that must be practiced to get better. And there's one thing that he says he likes to do, which is to refine his communication skills. And what he does, it sounds like he has someone who he has in the audience that will give him feedback and he's looking for questions such as is there anything we could have done better that would have yielded a better outcome what could i as a leader have done to make this better a better meeting or a better outcome and is there something we should implement for future meetings that would allow us to be more efficient or communicate better so if you don't do that already i encourage you to do so have a colleague someone you have a good relationship with and can trust who can give you that honest feedback so that you can improve your communication skills too. Because one of the most critical tools as CMIOs we all use is our ability to communicate to influence others and help make change happen. And let's wrap it up there as we hit the 30-minute mark. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Some of your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.